Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler-Holtz. Today, we'll be talking with Eric L. Bogan and Nicole Veracruz, authors of Violence and Mental Illness. How are you doing today? Great. Thank you. Very good. Thanks for having us. Great. I wonder if we could start by having you tell us a little about yourselves and how you got started on this project. Sure. Uh, this is Eric, and uh, I started on this project probably 30 years ago when I worked as a crisis clinician, a mental health counselor in Massachusetts, where we used to work on a mobile crisis team and go into the community and see if people with mental health problems were at risk of harm to themselves or other, meeting criteria for civil commitment. And after that, was really interested in how to evaluate for violent behavior and how to be able to train clinicians how to do it and to see whether or not they're, what was the extent of that relationship between mental illness and violence was. Uh, I'm Nico Varikoukis, and um, I've always been uh, fascinated and concerned by the uh, misconceptions that the larger culture has about vulnerable groups of people. And uh, when I started working in uh, community mental health in Alexandria, Virginia, about 30 years ago, um, I uh, saw that one of the the major misconceptions that people had about uh, people with serious mental illness uh, was the belief that they were uh, somehow more violent than uh, uh, people who did not have mental illness. Uh, this was not the experience I was having. Um, I found them to be overall very pleasant and cooperative to work with. So uh, over the years, I became interested in, in examining this misconception and bias. And uh, a few years ago, Eric and I started talking about it. Uh, and then uh, he uh, secured an offer to write a book about it from uh, NYU Press and asked me to join him. And uh, here we are today. Yeah, and one of the things Nico and I were talking about, uh, and we've talked about this before, is that as mental health professionals, a lot of our families and friends had those same misconceptions, and they'd ask us, uh, you know, do, are you are you worried about uh, about people who are dangerous? And uh, just like Nico, we I would say, well, no, um, you know, my <laughs> I really enjoy working with. Uh, with my clients. And so we both were seeing this disconnect between uh, what we're seeing clinically and uh, what the, the public perceived. 
when we have a major violent act that's occurring, do you think we're too eager to say the reason was mental illness? Yes. Uh, if you if you look at a lot of the the major media, um, news sites, uh, newspapers, magazines, uh, radio, a lot of times uh, one of the first uh, things you'll hear from uh, people who are commenting is uh, that uh, the person who committed the violent act must be mentally ill. Uh, and even if they don't say that mental illness directly caused it, uh, the fact that mental illness is, is mentioned so early uh, in the speculation of uh, the motivation for the act uh, leads people to believe that uh, mental illness must be the major cause. Um, so uh, this is something that, you know, we talk about a lot in the book uh, about what, what the message people receive from the media is. And usually uh, it's that uh, mental illness uh, is a major uh, cause. Now, what happens over time is uh, that as the facts of the case come out, uh, if there's a, a criminal trial or something like that, um, once all the uh, information is gathered and there's been uh, criminal investigation and uh, psychiatric assessment and, and all those things, it usually becomes clear that mental illness is not the major cause. Unfortunately, by that time, uh, most uh, casual observers uh, have lost interest and moved on. Uh, and they're left with this initial impression that mental illness is the cause. Do we need to ask what else is going on with that person when they commit a violent act? Yes, absolutely. And I think that that's, that's the change in questioning that we're urging everyone listening to this. When an act of violence happens, instead of having that knee-jerk reaction like Nico just talked about, are they mentally ill? Uh, instead of that, we ought to be asking, what else is going on? What are other factors to consider that maybe we don't have access to yet? Uh, what are some external influences? Were they influenced by groups that encouraged hate and violence? Did they have access to weapons? What were some internal factors? Were they young? Were they male? Did they have anger problems? So we need to go beyond just the knee-jerk reaction and instead think more consistently about the stronger risk factors for violence. Well, this is a follow-up. You talk about other pieces in the puzzle. What are we overlooking? Can you tell us more? Uh, yeah, related to what uh, I was just saying, imagine a jigsaw puzzle. So listeners, imagine a jigsaw puzzle. You have the box and you're, you dump all the pieces out. What we're doing when we read a media story, we take one piece of that puzzle, the mental illness piece, and we say, okay, we've solved it. That does not make any sense. What you instead do is you actually sort those pieces into piles. So one pile would be external influences, such as poverty, social support, financial strain. Another pile of pieces would be internal factors like young age, being male, anger, substance abuse, and mental illness, that's one, uh, being bullied. But then a third pile are those pieces of the puzzle that have those straight edges that you 
typically used to, you, you sort them first so that you could define the frame of the puzzle. And we call those violence defining factors because these are factors that by definition, if you look in the dictionary, they relate to violence and criminal thinking. So does someone have antisocial personality traits so that they don't care about hurting others? Do they lack empathy? Are they part of a hate organization that seeks to hurt other people? Do they have access to weapons? All those factors, those violence-defining factors, those straight edges are the ones that are necessary to every violent act because it means that that person who's perpetrating it thinks it's okay. So they're saying, yes, it's acceptable and they have the ability to do it. It's feasible. So anything that is feasible and acceptable, making violence okay, those are the puzzle pieces that are necessary, and those are the straight edges to look at. What does the research show concerning the link between violence and young males? They're both two of the strongest predictors of, of violence. If you look at the number of perpetrators of mass violence involving 10 or more victims in the United States since 1949. You could actually find this on Wikipedia. We have a figure of this in the book. You would actually see that 42% of those uh, perpetrators, 42% were males 25 years or younger. 42%. Uh, And so the epidemiological research, these are national surveys that look at representative samples have consistently shown that younger age and being male are among the strongest predictors of violence in society. Now, can you give us more information about the external risk factors and the internal risk factors of violence? So the uh, internal risk factors uh, would be the, the, the stressors that an individual is experiencing. Um, you know, uh, things like uh, anger, um, conflicts with uh, uh, family, co-workers, uh, trouble uh, managing stress generally, hostility, impulsivity, um, alcohol abuse. Uh, so those would be sort of uh, internal risk factors. And then on top of that, they could have external risk factors such as they may have been fired from their job. They may have ongoing financial problems. Uh, They may live in a neighborhood where there's uh, uh, lots of uh, violence or lots of insecurity um, or uh, lots of disorganization or uh, lots of impoverished people. Um, So these are sort of two uh, of the uh, major uh, areas that uh, come together and uh, increase the risk for violence when people are suffering. And usually people are suffering uh, more than one of these internal and external risk factors. I just want to add to that. So there are these external influences, these environmental factors, and there are these internal factors, but they're not all created equally. And one of the, the, there are a number of external factors such as having access to guns uh, and lack of gun safety, but even just as uh, disturbing are people who are influenced by social groups that encourage violence and hatred. Uh, so those are some external influences that, that 
are directly related to violence. And then internal influences that are directly related to violence would be antisocial traits, such as criminal thinking, thinking it's okay to break the law, thinking it's okay to blame others, uh, not take responsibility, and then lacking empathy and not caring about causing others pain. Those are internal factors too. And these ones that Eric just mentioned uh, about uh, hate groups and websites and gun access, these are the ones that uh, are the violence defining traits. Yeah. These, are, these are the ones that are very important when we're uh, looking at what causes violence. Now, you gave us several case studies in the book. Tell us about the fictitious David and his mental illness. So uh, what we did with, um, with the case of David, and there's, uh, I think, Sarah, John, and Bryce, is uh, we're showing the uh, three uh, major areas of serious mental illness. Uh, and David falls under the um, psychotic disorder, schizophrenia. Uh, and what we're trying to demonstrate in his case is here's someone who um, has suffered with uh, psychosis and hallucinations and delusions, uh, but with proper care and support through a community mental health center and medicine and therapy and case management uh, and other social support and also family support because he has a uh, supportive wife, he's able to uh, manage his condition. Um, and then we go on to talk about um, someone else uh, named Sarah who uh, struggles with major depression and then someone na named Bryce who struggles with bipolar disorder. Uh, and so we, we sort of treat those the same way where we're showing how uh, treatment and support can help somebody manage their condition. With the case with, I believe it's John, we add uh, another tw a twist that shows uh, how uh, antisocial traits can be very difficult to manage and control and can be uh, a predictor for violence. So we're using these, these four cases to show how simply having a serious mental illness is not enough uh, to uh, make someone violent. They need to have more of uh, the uh, more specific risk factors for violence. Insanity defense. How does a criminal get off using this? And is it used too much? So we have research showing that uh, there was a study that was done that asked some of these questions. And uh, it's, it, was, it was done a while ago, um, but uh, they asked people in a state what they thought um, was the number of times the insanity defense was raised. And it, on average, people thought that the, let's say it was uh, 22,000 felony indictments. People who, this is people who were perceiving how often it was raised, thought it was raised 37% of the time. That's 8,800 times. The reality, it was raised a fraction of that. It was raised 108 times. Uh, they also thought that it was successful almost 3,600 times. It was successful only once. So the perception uh, of the insanity defense working is way off the reality, but it's fueled by the perception that people 
with mental illness have violent tendencies. And that's one of the findings that we believe that it's frequently used and frequently successful, but it actually isn't. Schizophrenia, bipolar, and depression. How much does this attribute to violence? Well, we review the research on that. And one of the things, and there, there is a, a fact that's been uh, shown a number of times that mental illness is not necessary for violence to occur. And that only a fraction, 5% of violence can be attributable to those three disorders. So what that means, Deirdre, is that the vast majority of violence has nothing to do with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and depression. The second thing that is important is it's not sufficient for violence to occur, those disorders. So people may not realize that lacking empathy, criminal thinking, and hatred are not symptoms of schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and depression. Um, Actually, almost every study on the subject shows that most of the people with those disorders are not violent at all. And if anything, they're much more likely to be victims of violence than those that are not. You talk about neighborhood disadvantage and violence. What did you find in the research concerning this? So I think that, that there, were, there were several studies that looked at the link between those diagnoses and violence. These were national studies. And in, in one case, there was a reanalysis of the data that, sh- that they created this proxy uh, where, where they showed this concept of social support. And what they found was social st- stressful life events and social support were actually contributing to uh, a significant portion, uh, one third of the portion of the link between violence and mental illness. So what that meant is, is that because people with mental illness were more likely to be living in these neighborhoods of lower socioeconomic advantage, that was part of the reason, actually a third of the reason why they were reporting more violence. And that was repeated in another study, uh, the MacArthur Violence Risk Assessment Study. And both of them show that there are other factors at play. You can't, people with mental illness don't live in a vacuum. And so when you have a statistic, when you look at a table and it shows that there's this statistical association between schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and depression, you need to also be considering that that variable might be, how do I say it? It's correlated with someone who's more likely to be in these neighborhoods and have other risk factors. So you can't just artificially take out uh, the disorder. And so really what this is showing is that neighborhood disadvantage is critical to look at when even talking about. And, And if a study doesn't look at that, then it's missing, according to these studies, a third of the link between violence and mental illness, which I just want to add one thing. We do not say there is no link between violence and mental illness. It's just much, much weaker than everyone assumes. And this is, and I just want to make sure to get to this in case we don't get to it. Uh, And Nico, you could Mm -hmm. add in in a second. The national surveys for the last 10 years, which ask 
the United States public, what they think the top causes of violence are, uh, consistently rank mental illness or mental health problems as number one. But if you look at the data, if you look at the top predictors of intimate partner violence, sexual violence, stalking, child sexual abuse, targeted school violence, campus violence, attacks against government officials and facilities, mass attacks in public places. Mental illness is not ranked one. It's not ranked two. It's not ranked three. It's not ranked four. It's not ranked five. It's, it's not even in the top five of any of those. It is well on the bottom of the list if it's there at all. In one case, it's actually negatively related. So I think it's really important to take the take home would be it's not that mental illness is not related at all, but it's definitely much weaker than the public perceives. Now, you talk about annual income and violence. Tell us about that link. I think that that's similar to what we were just talking about with the community and neighborhood disadvantage. Uh, and it's been shown that people with mental illness are less likely to be working. They're, they're, they have lower income. And both of those are risk factors for violence. So again, those are more variables that need to be looked at. In other words, to go beyond that, is there a mental illness to moving to the question, what else might be going on? Adam Lanza, tell us his story. Adam Lanza uh, was the uh, Sandy Hook uh, shooter who uh, in um, uh, killed uh, uh, about, I think, 26, 27 people total, most of them uh, elementary school children in Connecticut uh, about 10 or so years ago. And um, he... Um, it, it's always disturbing, and, and I think for listeners, we want to acknowledge that it's always disturbing, especially for people who are somehow connected to the tragedy, to, to uh, look back on a mass shooter. But I think it's important uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, first is to make a point about violence and mental illness, and also to think about ways that we can uh, prevent violence. Um, he had trouble from a very young age um, with um, a number of things. He had problems with uh, social skills. He had problems with anxiety. Um, but one of the things that he had a lot of problems with was uh, extreme violent thoughts and fantasies from the time he was in elementary school. And uh, he had uh, treatment off and on, um, kind of consistent, but his mother often did not follow through on clinical recommendations, but he often did have an outpatient counselor and doctor. Um, by the time he got to middle school, he was having a lot of anxiety, a lot of adjustment problems with school, a lot of social issues. And um, his uh, clinician at the time recommended um, residential treatment. Um, and his mother uh, declined that. And um, uh, what, what's very sad about that in hindsight is that had he uh, been in residential treatment, uh, it would have increased the likelihood that his antisocial traits uh, would have been detected and, and addressed, uh, but they were not. So here's someone who's in school, is having a lot of social issues, some anxiety, 
and that becomes, uh, and, and maybe some mild autistic traits, and, and those issues become the focus, and his antisocial traits were sort of flying below radar. And then as he got older, he was uh, participating in a lot of violent uh, websites and uh, you know, still having a lot of violent thoughts and fantasies about mass shootings and, and things like that. And of course, the big factor, and we talked earlier about violence defining factors, was not only that, but also the fact that his mother, for reasons we don't know because uh, he killed her before uh, he went on his rampage, uh, his mother kept uh, a considerable arsenal of weapons, including uh, uh, automatic weapons, uh, in the home, and Adam had access to those. So um, here's someone who has uh, a lot of risk factors, um, uh, for violence and isn't getting sufficient um, psychiatric care treatment, which may have been able to prevent the violence by addressing the antisocial traits. Again, that's not guaranteed, but certainly if he had had residential treatment, uh, it, it perhaps would have detected that. In any event, um, the combination of his uh, antisocial traits and fantasies, um, the uh, violent websites he was frequenting and his mother's arsenal uh, sort of came together to create this horrible tragedy. Um, we go on to, uh, to contrast his case with another uh, person uh, who, uh, uh, Brett, who um, also had some violence in his life, uh, but um, did not have any social traits and had comprehensive uh, uh, support from a community mental health center. Uh, and there was a much more peaceful outcome. Uh, Brett did much better and, and never uh, had any uh, episodes of mass violence, certainly, and uh, eventually became stable. So um, we, we contrast those two cases to show that, uh, you know, again, you have two people who both look like they have significant psychiatric problems, but one has less significant psychiatric problems and more antisocial personality traits, which lead to the violence. How can society reduce this violent behavior? I think thinking back on the, the puzzle metaphor, uh, certainly picking up one piece of the puzzle and it be a small, weak piece and say, okay, if we address mental health issues, then violence will disappear. That's, that's going to be a suboptimal approach. That's going to be a suboptimal approach for one reason is not only is it weakly related, but I think one of the things that we talk about in the book uh, is I think sometimes the mental health profession, uh, it, it, we are, unfortunately, a lot of people think that we, even if we, a lot of times after someone who actually has mental health problems might act violently, we're, it's, there's oftentimes media that says, oh, well, if only they had been uh, in mental health treatment. Um, and while mental health treatment could address so many things, I think it's magical thinking to think that uh, just addressing this is possible for mental health professionals. First, we don't have ESP. We can't read the mind of our patient if they, you know, do have harbor violent fantasies. Second, 
uh, we don't have a crystal ball. We cannot predict with perfect accuracy if this is going to happen. And we don't have a magic potion. Uh, there's no magic potion to prevent violence. So I think that the mental health professional, the mental health professionals can have a say, especially when there's co-occurring substance abuse and mental health problems. And, you know, as Nico said, mental health professionals can help address anger and they could help uh, address a lot of things. Uh, but there has to be a lot of other aspects of it. And those include the environment. So improving the social environment and neighborhoods, addressing financial well-being, enhancing employment, building positive social support, not just thinking about mental health, but actually just as strong, if not stronger in many studies, just anger management uh, and, and helping with emotion regulation. This is not mental health diagnosis per se. It's literally helping with mental health uh, and addressing trauma, treating substance abuse, mental illness, but Mostly it's those violence defining risk factors, those puzzle pieces with the straight edges. How do we modify criminal thinking and prevent antisocial behavior? How do we promote gun safety and safe storage of firearms? And how do we minimize the influence of groups encouraging hate and violence? Those are all different approaches that society can take to reduce violent behavior. Now, what is the message you want to lead the reader with? once they finish your book? Uh, that mental illness uh, is not a cause, a direct cause of violence. That violence is uh, a complicated behavior that involves a number of motivating factors. And if people hear uh, in a broadcast uh, about a violent event, if if they hear mental illness first, they need to step back, take it with a grain of salt and wait and, and try to find out more information. I'm going to slightly, um, what, what Nico just said, I want to um, take a, take a little, I, I want to say that I think mental illness is not a top cause and it's, it's a direct cause in only like one out of so many, like it is like so rarely the only cause. That's why the insanity defense is so rarely uh, successful because ultimately mental illness alone, um, it, it, it doesn't live in a vacuum. And so people with mental illness have these other risk factors. Uh, they're more likely to have substance abuse than people without mental illness. And the combination together has been shown. So I think that, it's the strength uh, of mental illness, uh, and it is rarely a direct cause, but it's also much, much less of a cause at all uh, in terms of its strength compared to younger age, being male, anger, psychopathic traits, substance abuse, gun access. So I think it's, it's thinking about mental illness in relation to other factors and making sure not to overemphasize it because overemphasizing that means underemphasizing those stronger risk factors. Uh, and that's going to lead to us being less safe. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us the next project you'll be working on? 
Who knows? Yeah. Maybe maybe we'll come up with something. You know, yeah. we're ju we're just catching our breath after finishing this one. So, uh, but maybe something else interesting will come up. We'll see. We'll let you know. Please do. Yes, Again, we've been talking with the authors of Violence and Mental Illness, Rethinking Risk Factors, and Enhancing Public Safety. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you.